Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the host of the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. And joining me today, he is the man who played Norbert Barrington in the 2002 film The Country Bears, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I was plumbing the depths of my memory for Norbert. I knew I had played in Norbert, but it was like Country Bears, yeah, Wall of Fur. That was an enormously fun movie. I have to say, for people who aren't actors, that there seems to be a ratio that exists. Um, the more fun you have on the set, usually the less successful the movie will be at the box office. Because let me tell you, we had a blast doing Country Bears. Oh, Lord Almighty. Wait, are you implying that Country Bears was not a massive box office success? It was, and, and, and there's a reason for that. I, I don't know if people realize this at home, but there is a kind of sumo Greco-Roman wrestling that occurs as to which weekend you get far in advance of when you release your movie. So if you want to have a summer movie, those spots are taken months in advance and people wrestle for which week they want. And, of, and we ended up, I believe Country Bears was released the same weekend as the second or third Austin Powers movie. That is correct. Country Bears was released on July 26, 2002, the same Friday as Austin Powers Goldmember was released. Ouchie. So, yeah. and, and of course, Country Bears was aimed at kids, but at that point in our history, things had gotten so, uh, you, you know, kids were going to see Goldmember like crazy. Right, right. Killed us, killed us. Unfortunate, sir. Unfortunate. Well, <laughs> That's the way it rolls, baby. Indeed. Indeed, sir. Well, you know, Stephen, uh, this week is actually my birthday. Um, oh, no. Yeah. Uh, Thursday, May 20th. So by the time people are listening to this, it will my birthday will have already passed. But uh, I wanted to mention it because, you know, I was thinking uh, what I'd like to do on my birthday occasionally, not every year, but occasionally I like to uh, drive down to Connecticut where uh, casinos are legal and do a little gambling. Uh, I don't know what that sound is supposed to mean, but, uh, you know, Stephen, I was wondering, do you ever uh, go to Vegas or anything like that? Do you ever do any gambling? I, I did gambling on the movie uh, Philadelphia Experiment. We were put up at a casino. I gambled. Uh, I lost every time I sat at the table. David, I don't see winning at gambling as anything I want to aspire to. There's never enough you could win, and losing uh, makes me angry. So I, I just don't see the point of it, so I try to avoid gambling. I don't, you know, uh, the, the miracle that I want in my life is not, <laughs> is not to win at blackjack. Oh, and I stay away from Vegas like the plague. Well, Stephen, if that's not the miracle that you look for, then what is the type of miracle you look for? <sighs> that's such a good question, David. And miraculously, that is <laughs> the subject of today's story. Uh, today's story is a personal story for me, and uh, it's one that I want to thank David Chin for giving me the opportunity the podcast to tell the story, because this is the story about two miracles— one at the beginning and one at the end. And I realize that I'm on thin ice just by using the word miracle. I'm fully aware that in this particular period of history, the disdain of miracles is at an all-time high. 
there is a great divide in the population. If you did a big pie graph of people's attitudes toward miracles, I suspect you would probably have two main regions, one being people who want to believe in them but can't, and people who can't believe in them but want to. And the other regions of the pie graph are comprised of sports fans with losing teams, teenagers who just got laid, and the guy in New Jersey who won the Powerball lottery twice. But before I begin my tale of woe, I, I want to define what I'm talking about to make sure we're on the same page. What is a miracle? The first definition would be that it is an event that happens outside the realm of probability. But that doesn't really go far enough. Probability is always personal. It's almost always limited to how you experience the world. What you think is probable and what I think is probable can be two very different things. Example, I was shooting a film in Laguna Beach and next to the motel where I was staying was a convenience store. It was run by a Russian named Oleg, and I'm assuming that was his name because he was wearing an Oleg name tag. The store sold four things, beer, chips, coffee, and lottery tickets. I bought a bag of Fritos, and Oleg says, chips, 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 everybody come here all the time, and all they ever buy is chips. And I said, Oleg, they buy chips here because that's all you sell. People buy other things. They just buy them at other places. Oleg's experience of probability was extremely limited. It would be crazy if I asked Oleg to buy a pot roast there. However, it would be miraculous if Oleg had one to sell. My rabbi, Jonathan Bernhardt, would say that this does not go far enough. Just because an event is rare doesn't make it a miracle. It has to be an event that happens outside of natural law, outside of the way science usually works. And that's a good understanding of a miracle. But there is an earlier, more intriguing definition hinted at in the book of Genesis in the Bible that caught my eye. Now, many of you who are familiar with the Bible know that the Hebrew name used for God changes a lot. There's Yahweh, Eloheinu, Adonai, Hashem, and all of these names mean different things. And there are a lot of books written about what these names mean, and there are a lot of religion courses that will make you write papers on that. The general prevailing opinion is that what the different names refer to are the different aspects of what we call God, the different ways we perceive what we call the experience of God, kind of like the story of the blind men and the elephant. But one of the least used names is one that interests me a lot, El Shaddai, right? In fact, I think there's even a rock group that took that name. It's used pretty early in the book of Genesis, and then it's dropped. Abraham meets El Shaddai even before his name was Abraham. He was just called Abram at the time. El Shaddai comes in a vision, and he tells Abram that his life will be completely different from anything he imagined. And Abram says, that can't be because the stars foretell a different story. El Shaddai says, it doesn't matter because what I say goes. You see, this rarely used name for God, El Shaddai, literally means that which can overcome astrology. Viewed in context, another way of saying that which is bigger than the force of fate? Okay, that's a loose enough definition for me thinking about the miraculous. 
I was shooting a television show, Big Day, and I noticed I was getting hoarse after lunch. The hoarseness never went away for the rest of the day. I thought it was allergy of some sort, so I tried not eating when I worked. That staved off the hoarseness for a bit, but it always came back in the afternoon. I talked to the directors on the show, and I mentioned I was having some sort of allergy thing, and maybe it was a good idea to shoot all of my talking scenes in the morning, and they accommodated me as much as they could. But the hoarseness increased. I had fewer and fewer hours a day that I could talk. I started getting scared. Annie told me I had to go to the doctor. After a few months, I did. And I found out that I had a growth on my vocal cords, which, good news, it appeared to be non-cancerous. And with rest and therapy, it could go away. But it didn't. And after another year, my voice was gone. But I continued to try to speak. And I ruptured my vocal cord. Now I needed surgery and two months of absolute silence to recover. I was told by my doctor I could not talk, cough, whisper, or even sneeze because any vibration in my vocal cords could result in another hemorrhage. My communication with the outside world was reduced to writing on a legal pad and mime. If I got angry or frustrated, the only thing I could do was write in red ink. I also began suffering from dull, persistent headaches that kept me awake at night. In my current state of mind, I was certain that I had a brain tumor. So my throat doctor sent me to a head and neck specialist to get an MRI, and the tests were negative for a brain tumor, but positive for a completely new and unexpected source of bad news. My doctor told me I had advanced arthritis of the neck. That's what was causing the headaches. He flipped on his computer, he pulled out his ballpoint pen, and he started pointing to the indecipherable shadows on the screen, and it brought back the memories of my dog Pooch at the vet and the horrible things that were only visible to the trained eye. Apparently, my condition was so advanced that my neck vertebra had fused and deformed. The natural curve of my neck was so twisted by the arthritis that the top of my spine was backwards from a normal spine. I couldn't believe this. I had always been relatively athletic. I never had anything wrong, and now my entire life was falling apart. I was overwhelmed by depression. My doctor told me to go away somewhere, somewhere quiet. He told me to pursue some peaceful activities in nature, like golf. Obviously, the good doctor <laughs> was not a golfer. He wasn't aware that I was one shank away from a bout of Tourette syndrome and another hemorrhage. Annie and I ended up going on an unexpected third honeymoon to New York for a week and then off to Iceland to ride horses. We loved to ride. We had been to Iceland twice before. It's one of the quietest, most beautiful places on earth. We signed up for a three-day trek to the base of an active volcano, Mount Hetla. And there were about 10 other riders. And to make things more interesting, we were herding 30 loose horses. And every two hours, we'd take a break. we switch off riding, either in the front or behind the herd. We were on the last leg of the last day. I had switched horses. I remember I was looking up into the sky, and I saw dark clouds moving in. I didn't know if we were going to be hit by storms. The weather in Iceland's very unpredictable. I asked one of the riding crew if he could tighten my saddle. 
I put my feet into the stirrups. I tested my balance. I remember pulling on the reins and turning the horse toward the road. I felt a random drop of rain on my face. And then, blackness. The next hours are lost to me forever. The darkness cleared, and I remember seeing Anne's face, and then it vanished. And then I saw her again, and I asked what happened. And she told me I fell off of my horse, and the first thing that went through my mind was, Oh, shit! This isn't happening. This can't be happening. I don't fall off of a horse. And then there was a noise around me, and I had a sensation that I was moving. I asked Anne where we were. She said I was in an ambulance. I looked up at Anne, and then everything vanished. And then came my first miracle. I was in Los Angeles at a home I had been to before. And let me be perfectly clear. This was not a dream. I was in Los Angeles. I felt the warm breeze on my face. I was sitting at a metal patio table in a backyard. I saw the rust stains on the table where the paint had chipped off. It was late summer, so the roses in the yard had that hot, dry, sweet smell mixed in with society garlic. And I was telling everyone at the table that I was all right. I wasn't hurt. And as I was talking, I noticed three flies buzzing around the tabletop. I was given a glass of iced tea. The ice clinked in the glass as it was put in front of me, and a drop of condensation ran down the side of the glass. It was cold and wet. The wind shifted a little, and I got a scent of chlorine coming off the pool. I heard birds. I looked over the back fence and I saw some sparrows sitting on a telephone line. They flew away. I turned to the people at the table again and I started to speak and they vanished. And Anne's face reappeared over me. I asked Anne what happened. She smiled and said I fell off of a horse. And in my mind I went, shit, I fell off of a horse? What's happening? And I asked her, where are we now? Anne said calmly, we're in Iceland. I asked her, have I been here the whole time? Anne looked at me and she kept smiling. She said, no, we've only been in the ambulance a few minutes. I said, that's not what I mean. Have I been in Iceland this whole time? A billion things passed through Anne's eyes in a second, but all she said was, where did you think you were? I said, I was in Los Angeles. I thought I was just in Los Angeles. Anne shook her head. No, we've been here for almost a week. I said, Annie, I was just in a backyard in Los Angeles. Anne shook her head and said, you were dreaming. I said, no, no, I was there for real. I could see and smell and touch. I was there. Anne looked off and then looked back at me. She said, do you remember when we were in New York? I said, no, we were in New York. She said, we saw Julie's play. Then I realized I was on a gurney and I was belted down. My neck was in a metal brace and I heard the ambulance siren for the first time. And I asked Anne, what happened to me? She said, I just told you, you can't remember. I said, I know, I'm sorry. Tell me one more time. This time, I promise, I'll remember. Anne smiled and nodded. She put her hand on me and said, 
You were thrown from a horse. You were hurt. We're in Iceland. We're on our way to a hospital in Reykjavik. I said, Anne, I thought I was in Los Angeles. She said, I know. But you're here. We're here. Anne smiled, but her eyes filled with tears. The next thing I remember, I was being moved into a CAT scan machine, and the machine roared and shook as it circled me. And then I was in a hospital room talking to a doctor. He was a young, pleasant man. He had a reddish beard and a gold chain around his neck. I remember trying to be lighthearted. Anne sat in a chair in the corner. From that moment on, I remembered I was in Iceland, and I had a horseback riding accident. So time-wise, we're talking about 7 p.m., three hours after my ambulance ride and my visitation to Los Angeles. Anne explained to me that a freak wind came off the volcano and blew me and my horse off the road. The horse spooked and took off across a lava flow, and somewhere on that plain of rock, I was thrown. I landed on the only soft circle of vegetation on that mountainside. My helmet was cracked. When our Icelandic guide came up to me, apparently I got up, I laughed, I told him I was all right. I got on another horse and then said I felt sick. He asked me if I was hurt from the fall, and I said, what fall? They pulled me off of the horse. I was taken to a local doctor in the town of Hitler who put me in the metal neck brace and ordered the ambulance. So now it's around 8 p.m. in the hospital. We were waiting for a specialist to read my CAT scan. And even though I was still passing in and out of consciousness, I began remembering more of my past. I remembered that morning. I remembered the hotel we were staying at. I remembered my good horse that I rode the first day, Lady Red. I remembered New York and the play Julie was in and our accidental honeymoon. Anne started crying with relief. She held me and told me she was afraid I would never remember our lives together, the good and the bad times, all of it that had gotten us here. The doctor and the specialist came into the room and told me it looked like I had a fracture in a vertebra in my neck. Anne asked what that meant. The doctors looked at Anne like, Really, lady, you don't know what a broken neck is? But Anne, who is the reincarnation of the Greek goddess of perception and clarity, said, I'm asking you, do we fly back to America tonight or do we have to stay for another three months? They said that as long as I stayed still and avoided anything physical, I should be fine. We could go back to America as planned in a few days. They fitted me with one of those foam neck collars, the kind they give people who have whiplash and who are cast in lowbrow comedies to indicate that someone had an injury. They told me that when I got back to America, I should try to find a head and neck specialist and show them my CAT scan. And I started laughing. I said, well, guess what? This is my lucky day. I happen to already have a head and neck specialist in Los Angeles who did an entire set of x-rays two weeks ago when I thought I had a brain tumor. The doctors just stared at me, and I realized you can't joke about brain tumors in a hospital. We got back to our hotel a little after midnight. It was still bright sun outside, you know, the Arctic Circle in summer. First thing I did was go to the bar, not for a drink, but to visit their piano. I sat down and played Beethoven's Tempest Sonata. My hand still worked.
I said a little prayer to no one in particular, and I got to our room, and I felt energized. All in all, I was pretty lucky, right? I got hurt on the last day of the ride, not the first. I appeared to be in one piece. I'd even been spared being bored at the hospital by my massive concussion and amnesia and got the brunt of it all and went into the bathroom to take a bit of a soak. And I was alone in the bedroom. I took off my horse pants and boots and decided I would stretch out on the bed. And that's when life as we know it came to an end. The soft collar replacing the steel brace from the ambulance couldn't support my neck and my head moved. The world went black. My breathing stopped. I fought to sit up. My heart was racing. My vision came back. And the notion that I had survived in one piece was an apparent illusion. And in that brief moment, I realized I was at the beginning of something, not at the end. I spent the next few days in Iceland very aware of my injury. Two of my fellow riders, Tony Shaloub and Brooke Adams, watched over me like mother birds. They were two of the dearest companions I could have had. Tony was always asking if there was anything he could do for me. Could he get me water? Could he get me toast? And Brooke was fearsome in her determination to get me help after the fall. Her sister had a serious head injury after a fall from a horse, and she knew I was in much worse shape than anyone wanted to admit. It was Brooke that insisted I be taken to the doctor immediately on the side of that mountain. At the end of our stay, we headed back home, and after the first leg of the journey, at Kennedy Airport, a strange bearded man came up to me. He told me he was a big fan of Deadwood. He wanted to know if my neck collar was for real, if I just figured out a good way to get on the plane first. I laughed and told him I had broken my neck in Iceland, and they gave me a collar as a souvenir token of their kindness to strangers. The man's face darkened. He said, I don't want to scare you, but if what you said is true, you are in the wrong collar for the flight, and it can kill you. He explained to me he was a neurosurgeon from Mount Sinai Hospital, and he knew what he was talking about. He told me the vibrations and the jostling from turbulence could cause the broken bones to shift. So he suggested I hold the soft collar tightly with my hands on takeoff, on landing, anytime the flight got bumpy. He said as soon as I got to L.A., I needed to get into a hard collar that locks the chin and the back of the head in one place. I thanked him and wondered what the mathematical probability was of running into a neurosurgeon before the flight. I got back to Los Angeles and called my head and neck doctor. And here is where I had my second miracle. My doctor looked at the CAT scans from Iceland and shook his head. He said they were misread. I had not broken one, but five vertebrae in my neck. C2 to C6, and to make things even more dramatic, C4, right in the middle, was not just broken. It was pulverized. And he said, you flew on the plane with a soft collar? I said, yes, sir, but I had help from unexpected sources. Mount Sinai in New York. Dr. Perry told me that I had the same basic injury Christopher Reeve had. He told me it's often fatal, and if not fatal, certainly crippling. And he stared into space for a moment, and he shook his head in disbelief. And he said, do you want to know why you're still alive? 
I couldn't nod my head in my new hard collar, but I pulled up a chair in front of his computer, and he pulled out that ballpoint pen again and pointed to the ghostly images of my x-ray on his monitor. He said, it was your arthritis. If the curve of your neck were normal, the blow you received would have severed your spinal cord. The reverse curve of your neck dispersed the force. The vertebra, being so fused and deformed, acted like armor. It's unbelievable. I stared at the screen, at the image of what I thought had been my curse, now my salvation, unable to even comprehend the towers of circumstance that allowed me to see another morning and tell my children I'd love them one more time. I asked my doctor how long it would take for me to heal. He said three months. The pieces of the bone apparently get sticky after one month. They form a soft bond after two months, and after three months they become hard and the break is healed. Amazing. I asked, how does all of this happen? He shrugged his shoulders and said, no one knows. You asked me how long it would take to heal. That I know, three months. Why something heals? That's a mystery. There are some things we can comfortably put in a box labeled the unknown. And there are other things that rest not so comfortably in a different box called the unknowable. It's the same box that holds the secrets of the oceans and numbers the stars in the sky. It also has a record of the missing hours after my fall and my unexpected visit to a backyard in Los Angeles. I don't know if it is mystery or miraculous, but I imagine it's all written down in a book called Fate, a book I only saw the shadow of on the mountain. To this day, I couldn't tell you if the shadow was a passing cloud, Anne's face in the back of an ambulance, or El Shaddai, teaching me the hard lessons of the existence of angels on earth. I think all of us go through the day as a simple problem in mathematics. Example, I wake up Stephen. Stephen is X. Stephen hopefully adds a cup of coffee and notices that my phone is blinking and I missed a message that I had an audition this morning on the other side of town during rush hour. And then I add that they want me to wear a suit. And then I add that my white shirt needs ironing. And then I add that I don't know how to open the ironing board and I have to improvise and iron on the dining room table where I unintentionally iron some gravy into the back of my shirt. Then I add that I'm late. And then I have to stop the hypothetical addition here, David, because I'm getting ill. My theory is that at a certain point in the daily mathematical process, I cease to become Stephen and I am defined more by my additions. When you're sick, when you're injured, the same thing happens to you, but with a different mathematical operation. 
you become a problem of subtraction. When I returned from Iceland, I was confronted with a rapidly shrinking me. The first thing you learn when you have a broken neck is that you can't lie down. Ever. This is something they don't put in the brochure. You have to be vertical for three months. You have to sleep upright, propped up against the wall like at the bus station. If you happen to lean or slump or tilt while you're unconscious, you wake up gasping for air, disoriented and in pain. So you end up looking towards the evening with dread. When I got back from my doctor with my new neck brace, my equation began with Stephen minus sleep. The brace locked my head in a forward position, so you subtract mobility. Without mobility, you also subtract independence. I couldn't drive a car. I couldn't bend over to tie my shoes or look for socks in a drawer. I couldn't look down at the page of a book or a flight of stairs or a plate of food. So after this first round of subtraction, the world that was left to me was what was right in front of me at eye level. So I thought it may be good to try to stay fit. I could still walk. Well, that didn't work out either, because after a gentle stroll of a half a block, I realized that the neck brace acts like a tourniquet for snake bite, and my head began to swell and turn red, transforming me into a large strawberry lollipop. So you subtract overall fitness and a sense of well-being. You hit the total button, and the next product of my reduced world was anger. Growing anger as each day wore on. In my experience, anger is not an addition in your daily mathematical problem. It is an exponent. It's an exponent that multiplies whatever you happen to be doing. It can help you fight your way to the front of a deli counter to get the last roasted chicken, or it can help a mother lift a car off of her child. But anger is amoral. It is not reserved for noble enterprises like chicken or children. More than anything, it serves as a vehicle for isolation. And when you've already been isolated by injury, anger creates a real sense of hopelessness. Like all algebraic equations, marriages tend to seek balance. When one partner is subtracting, the addition for the other partner increases significantly. In my case, Anne's life completely changed. She had to do all the work around the house, all the child chores, all of the driving. She had to help me wash my hair. She had to help me get dressed. And worst of all, she had to wait for me in every doctor's office and waiting room where the only thing they usually had to read was a well-used copy of Highlights or maybe Golf Digest. To Anne's credit, she never complained. And she did take up golf. If you had a scorecard, I was injured, dependent, angry, and unable to work. We had to live off of our savings. So when that was gone, we had to borrow on our house. In other words, we had all of the bad stuff that was on those little index cards from the judge's office in Memphis so many years ago. We had the worse, part of better or worse, combined with sickness and poorer. If I could write a poem for Annie without embarrassing her, it would have to capture the dedication to that little index card she read aloud that afternoon around Christmas in Memphis 20 years ago with our judge in the light blue jumpsuit with the huge toupee, the day of the three tornadoes. 
The problem with most weddings is that it's easy to make promises at a catered party. When you're in the conga line at a reception, the last thing on your mind is that you will ever be held to a bargain. There were many times in our married life I thought Anne and I would never make it. In fact, I would have bet on it. Two near divorces, untold miseries, reenacting textbook illustrations of what not to do. But her dealing with me now, facing the worst, was a promise truly kept. It was a type of addition I had never experienced in my life at a time when I needed it the most. I admit I was never good at geometry. That's where you have to know the end of the problem before you begin. But I could always do algebra. I knew with any problem of finding X, you have to do the opposite. If you got too much addition around X, you have to subtract. If you got too much subtraction, you have to add. Anne's love in the toughest of times changed the momentum in my life. So I started looking for new things to add rather than revisiting the seemingly insurmountable walls of my subtraction every hour of every day. At first, my personal process of addition was not very grand. I could sit outside. That was it. I sat on a wooden bench in the garden. I had planted some roses before Anne and I left for Iceland, and they were starting to bloom. I could sit outside and watch them. This turned out to be far more enjoyable than I ever could have imagined. I love roses, and of course, they're very pretty, but there were also some surprises. I became aware of the shadows of the trees as they moved on the ground. And the breeze would change direction and change temperature, and occasionally the scent of a rose would waft toward me. Then I became aware of the birds in the yard. I started to hear their different calls, and in my head, I was imagining what they were trying to say to each other. There was nothing more exciting than one morning when I saw a mother bird teaching her teenagers how to fly, which looked an awful lot like pushing them out of the nest. It was sort of a literal chicken on the high board moment. The little birds would seemingly fall, and then amazingly, they would flutter in the most ungraceful way right before they hit the ground, but it was enough. And they swooped up to a low branch and paused. They took a breath, and eventually they made their way back up to the nest where she pushed them out again. And after a few passes, the young birds chirped and seemed to move from terror and complaint to, one more time, one more time, please, please, please. My enjoyment of my little world was interrupted when an unripe avocado fell and missed my head by six inches. It was a close call. And then I hear a chattering above me and realized a squirrel had dropped it. Over the next few days, more avocados fell and just missed. So I dragged my bench to another part of the yard and began to enjoy a different perspective when a magnolia sea pod fell and hit the bench beside me. Again, I heard chattering. It was the squirrel. It finally dawned on me this falling vegetation was no accident. This was war. This was Al-Qaeda squirrel, a terrorist out to get me. I kept moving my bench, but the avocados and seed pods kept falling. I took to wearing a baseball hat for protection. and Then I realized I needed more armor and put on my old riding helmet. I picked some kumquats and put them in my pocket for a counterattack if Al-Qaeda ever dared come close enough. 
Now, the neck brace kept me from throwing with any force or accuracy, but Al-Qaeda didn't know that. As the war heated up, I realized my greatest weapon was surprise, so I decided to break up my routine. I would alternate garden sitting with a new indoor project. I tried playing the piano again. I couldn't look down at the keys, but I found if I memorized a couple of notes, I could sit back and place my hands in the right spot. Eventually, the muscle memory would kick in and I could move forward to the next phrase. I picked a very difficult piece, one I never would have tried before the accident, but I made it my goal to learn these notes. That way, when I finished this part of my life, I would always know that this specific music was something good that came from this time. One morning, I was practicing at the piano, and I noticed movement out of the corner of my eye. I turned. It was Al-Qaeda Squirrel. He was standing up the window watching me. I opened the door and tossed him a kumquat. He eyed it suspiciously, then he greedily picked it up and carried it over to a tree stump where he peeled and ate it. I thought we had achieved a truce and a Disney moment at the same time. Until a couple of hours later when I went out to my bench and he started dropping avocados on me again. I called Annie out to see if she had any thoughts on the war. She calmly watched Al-Qaeda jumping in the trees above me, and it never fails to get a woman's perspective. She took it all in and noted, wow, look at the balls on that squirrel. She was right. I hadn't noticed it before, but this squirrel was hung like a woodchuck. He had to walk on his tiptoes to keep from dragging his goodies on the ground. She told me he was probably challenging me as the male for control of the backyard. I said, hey, I was more than happy to let him have control of all of the non-human females in the backyard. But history teaches hard lessons. One of them is you can't negotiate with terrorists. So the war continued. I tried a strategic retreat. Anne helped me move the bench completely away from the umbrella of the trees. And now he couldn't just drop things on me. He would have to actually throw things at me to continue the hostilities. More importantly, I was now in the sun. And my perspective changed again. The scent of roses was very dense in this part of the yard, and my head was swimming. And then I see a flash of color in the trees. It was a flock of parrots. Parrots! A neighbor told me the story. Apparently, 30 years ago, there was a fire at a pet store, and the owner released the parrots to save them. And they still lived in the area, and they moved from house to house. But this was the first time I ever saw them in our trees. Now that I had sunlight, I decided to add something else to my equation. By propping up my book on some pillows, I could bring it to my eye level, and I thought I would do the same thing with reading as I did with the piano. I would take something I never ever would have thought I would have time to read before, and it would always stand as a remembrance of this time. I pulled out a volume of the Talmud. The Talmud is the Jewish book of oral law that's considered second holiest book next to the Torah. It's very dense and not written with Western sensibilities at all of having a beginning, a middle, and end. It's more of a circular discussion on matters as odd as Um, what to do when you encounter a demon, 
to even more odd matters of what to do when you're praying and you inadvertently step in manure. But along the way, there were mind-blowing stories of spiritual truths that have the power to instantly change your perspective on life, sort of spiritually moving your bench. I settled into a routine of reading the Talmud, playing the piano. Al-Qaeda would occasionally come running up to about 10 feet from me. He would stand up on his hind legs and chatter. Now, thank you very much, Anne. Thanks to her comment, I couldn't get the idea out of my head. He was trying to show me his balls. I would toss him a kumquat as tribute. He would take it and run over to a stump. During a break in the action, I came across a section in the Talmud called The Afflictions of Love. It was a story that seemed to have been written during a period of incredible hardship, of war, of loss, of exile. And it was said that certain individuals are occasionally tested with injury or illness as a means of lifting them up to a higher spiritual level. Despite the trauma of the test, the rewards were great, nothing less than being able to see life with new eyes. Therefore, the injury did not have to be viewed as catastrophic, but a rare, even divine gift of love. It was unimportant as to whether or not I believe that there is a God that dispensed hardship to certain people in order to change their worldview. All I know is that in that moment, I recognized that my view had changed. The afflictions of love is a very difficult story to embrace. It calls so many things to question. What is good? What is bad? What's a blessing? What's a curse? It makes our daily mathematical problems cease to be addition and become some form of calculus. Eventually, this period in my life ended. The show Heroes called up and wanted me to reshoot my death. I got an audition for Glee, which officially started my career again. My time in the backyard decreased. And I was back to ironing shirts on the dining room table. But one morning, I went back outside to learn lines for an episode of Glee. And I was sitting on my bench and I saw a shadow passing over the yard. Even though I didn't look up from its shape and its speed, I knew it was one of the renegade parrots flying overhead. And I began to understand the nature of miracles. You can never recognize the shadow if you haven't seen the original. That was The Afflictions of Love, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You know, Stephen, I bet a lot of people are probably wondering, and I'm wondering, do you still ride? Oh, man. As funny as it seems, I do, David. I do. But I, I have to say that I have a psychological block, and my horse is very strong and very fast, 
and I am afraid of riding him on the trail now in case anything bad happened. So I do ride him in the arena where I could always kind of turn him into a wall in case he gets away from me. <laughs> well, Stephen, uh, it's, it's really great to hear that you are obviously okay. You're totally ambulatory now and uh, back to your old self, yes? Yes, totally ambulatory. And since then, of course, uh, you've given us Sandy Ryerson from Glee and, of course, the uh, Alan Davenport from Buried and the Tobolowski <laughs> Files, yes, among other things. <laughs> Stu Beggs in Californication. <laughs> That's right. I'm sorry. I forgot to even... Because let me tell you, I do a lot of running in that. Exactly. I, 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 I do a lot of ambulatory stuff in that. Well, <laughs> and uh, that was supposed to be with a, suggest a suggestive nod. Uh, there is a right. suggestive wink in my eye. You can't see this because it's audio, but yes, Stephen was doing a nudge, <laughs> nudge, you know what I mean just now. Uh, well, anyway, uh, speaking of uh, ways in which you've, <laughs> what you've given to the world, uh, as we like to do each week, uh, we're going to read an email from people. Uh, you can always email Stephen at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. We'll spell that in a little bit. Uh, some of the most moving, powerful emails I like to post at the Tobolowski Tumblr at tobolowski.tumblr.com. That's tobolowski.tumblr.com. This week, someone writes in, Hi, I wanted to say thank you for your stories. I've been listening to them with my son since not long after he was born. He's eight months old now, and he recognizes your voice. It makes him smile. Your joy for life is an amazing thing. The wee man and you seem to be on the same page. Everything interesting and exciting, and life a great adventure to tug me along to. I look forward to him being able to grow up around your stories. I hope he will get to meet you someday. Possibly not soon. At the moment, he would slobber on you. He slobbers a lot. Thank you. Oh, that's so dear. Yeah, I, I find that I'm slobbering a lot too lately. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a problem. Well, that yeah. person, you're imprinting on, on a new generation. <laughs> oh, dear. So oh, I love it. When he when he meets you for the first time, he'll he'll think you're his dad or something. Yeah, something like that. Follow like me that. to the pond. In That's any a... case, uh, Stephen, if people want to write in with their stories of uh, how they've been affected by the Tobolowski files, uh, how can they reach you? I think uh, Stephen Tobolowski at gmail dot com. That's S T E P H E N T as in Tom O B as in boy O L O W. S-K-Y at gmail.com. And also, uh, Twitter, we've had some lovely Twitter talks this week at uh, twitter.com slash Tobolowski, the same spelling, please. And also Facebook, David. Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski. If you'd like to reach me, you can find me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. Facebook.com slash Chen David. You can also find the other podcast I host, the Slash Filmcast at slashfilmcast.com. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to SlashFilm.com, a movie news website. It's pretty cool stuff. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. Details to come soon about the June 5th meeting that we're going to be having, hopefully, in L.A. Uh, we'll probably try to announce that the week before that happens. If you'd like to wish me happy birthday, feel free to uh, send me an email at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Bye-bye, and happy birthday, David. Thanks, David. <laughs>